Welcome to Access Ideas, where we share insights and perspectives that spark curiosity, conversation, and inspiration. I'm Yana, and if you're interested in rediscovering your roots, today's conversation reveals an epic odyssey to Africa. Like most descendants of enslaved Africans, Rachel DeCoste could not pinpoint her origins until technology evolved. Guided by a DNA test, in 2018, she visited five countries in as many months. Each country held a piece of her ancestry. When Rachel returned home, she recorded an audiobook about her adventures called The Year of Return, A Black Woman's African Homecoming. Rachel recounts her journey with vivid imagery and humor. Her pan-African trek is peppered with unexpected twists and delightful discoveries. This conversation was originally released in 2020 on the Audiobook Reviews in 5 Minutes podcast. And since we first met, Rachel's story went viral thanks to a CNN article, which appeared in at least five languages. I've included a link to the English article in the show notes, and you'll be pleased to know Rachel is doing well with her family in Ottawa, Canada. Be sure to read the article after listening to this conversation to see how Rachel's journey has continued. And now I bring you Rachel DeCoste. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thanks so much for coming on Audiobook Reviews in 5 Minutes. I'm really excited to share your story today. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. You have a new audiobook that you published in February, I believe. It's all about your story, your journey to Africa, to West Africa specifically, and it's based on your DNA test results that you took. You got genetic test results. Tell me a little bit about that experience and then how that led to you wanting to travel to West Africa. So as a descendant of enslaved Africans, my parents are from the Caribbean. Um, I know what island they're from, obviously, but beyond that, we don't really know where we're from. The Haitian folklore says that we're from Guinea and Abomey. Abomey is where the origins of what we call voodoo in North America. And Guinea is just in the folklore. But when you look at the map, there's actually three Guineas in Africa. guinea Conakry, Guinea-Bissau, and Equatorial New Guinea. And the, the folklore doesn't say which one. So... Um, it's always been a question mark, like what part of Africa did my ancestors come from? Uh, we know that there aren't many records. They didn't keep records. And DNA became a way that I could perhaps pinpoint some of the places where I might go where people look like me. Mm-hmm. It became the key to solve this mystery. That's it's so interesting because it's... A relatively modern technology. You've grown up in Canada. You have, of course, a great awareness of your ancestry, and, and your parents, of course, are from Haiti, so they've t- talked to you about their family and their stories. When you think about how you approached your trip, what ideas or preconceived notions did you have about what to expect when you got there in terms of linking who you are and your identity to the ancestry? I had a lot of preconceived ideas about Africa because I was raised in North America, just like everybody else that's raised in North America. We have ideas about poverty, children with flies on their faces, corruption, violence, political instability, um, lack of what we would call civilization, meaning they might live in huts, Mm-hmm. Um, running water might be an issue, etc. So that's the idea I had. But at the same time, I've met people who immigrated directly from Africa in the past 10 years who tell me that their city had running water, they had electricity, they had sky rises, mm-hmm. they speak multiple languages. So there's a, a duality there that you wonder, which one is it? Um, and as far as my ancestry, I wondered... What part of Haitian culture might I find Mm -hmm. in Africa? Um, Having traveled across the Caribbean before that, including um, South America and Brazil, there are some dishes that I thought were Haitian. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I went to Brazil and I saw the same exact thing with a different name. Oh, wow. Um, and that happened across the Caribbean and South, South America. And I thought, maybe I'll see more of those linkages in Africa. I didn't know what to expect, but I knew I'd see something that could remind me of, um, of my ancestry in Haiti and perhaps some of the cultures, the, the cultural baggage that my parents came uh, to Canada with. Maybe I'll see the linkages there. I don't know what I'm going to see, but I was excited to find out. Yeah, yeah. One of the first scenes in your audiobook is you looking at this this landscape and then this music from the Disney movie The Lion King pops in your head and immediately you feel self-conscious about oh this is not African this is you know Elton John <laughs> it's a British guy <laughs> British white guy <laughs> yeah exactly so it was I found that so funny, but also kind of refreshing because you're painting a very honest picture of what we bring to our experiences. And we're expecting a certain experience typically when we go somewhere, even if we don't even realize it. And this was one of those moments where you realized, oh, I've been carrying this around and here I am and this this music comes into my head. I found it really interesting that you paid so much attention to the detail and the authentic experience of each place. And you share that with listeners. You talk a little bit about the bustling nature of the Ivory Coast and and the history of trade. Can you talk a little bit about how you link that back to your own sense of self and your understanding of the world around you? I'm a history buff. And I love to find out what makes people tick, um, what makes people different, why culturally somebody, one, one, one part of the country went right, the other one went left. And having learned a little bit about Africa and knowing that many of these countries used to be um, ethnic groups and they were split by borders. Mm-hmm. And so you can see some of the similarities in different countries, and you can also see some of the differences between tribal groups that are still present today. So these and are groups. Just to to under just to clarify, you would see um, similarities in different countries because these these borders had been drawn arbitrarily for colonial reasons, not really respecting the the boundaries of the original inhabitants of that land. Exactly. So there are Yoruba people in Benin and in Nigeria. And to this day, because they were colonized by two different European countries, so one was French, one was English, in order to talk to each other, they have to speak Yoruba because they don't speak, you know, they're not bilingual in the Canadian sense, meaning they don't speak French and English. And so there are ways that they, Africans, connect through their international borders and there's also some differences within countries because obviously some of the ethnic tribes ended up in one country. And some of those differences you could see today, where whether it's some of them are tall, particularly tall. Some of them are particularly, uh, they have a different shape, shapely. They might have different uh, languages, different religions. Um, and as a descendant of a as a descendant of enslaved people, I know that we were all mixed together. So all of them are part of me. And I, th- I thought it was interesting that I could at least try to connect with almost every African I met because I said, you know, because I'm a descendant of enslaved people, we're cousins, regardless of your ethnic tribes, regardless of your current um uh, cultural differences within the country, I'm related to both sides. So I'm friends right. with both sides. Mm-hmm. So I love that I could connect with everybody. Um, but there's also a part that was difficult, which was for any enslaved person, a descendant of enslaved people, eventually you're going to face slavery. Right. Th- there's no way around that. And so I visited several slave memorials. Sometimes it's the actual building where they kept mostly young people. Most of them were children. I remember the description in your audiobook at looking at this structure and thinking to yourself, 
someone had to design this to hold human beings. And and that's really driving home that that feeling. Um, how would you describe that in the sense of being there in person versus reading about it or hearing about it, like someone who's listening to this? We've all heard of the movie Roots from the 70s, yeah. which I think was remade recently. We've seen those movies, 12 Years of a Slave, which won yeah. an Oscar. Um, and a lot of them show a depiction of the enslavement of Africans. Right. And those pictures are difficult to watch in film, in fictional film. In person, it's a hundred times worse. Wow. Just the severity of it, the cruelty that was made. And that's when I talked about the person that designed the the house with ideas of how can I use the space to best hold people in bondage Mm -hmm. and punish those who might cry out too loudly or or resist. Where will I put them? And they found a space under the stairs. Like the the way that they use space to, to harm people was just hard to watch. And even though there are no actual people that you will see getting enslaved, you know, it's all just the walls, it's very easy to imagine how this functioned when you're physically there. And perhaps the the ghosts and the spirits of people who died there are still there, but it was very vivid to me. It's more vivid than the movie. And it was hard to see that. I, I, I talk about maybe... A Jewish person that might go to Auschwitz, how they might feel at Auschwitz, it's not a pleasant experience, but you go there to see and give testimony to what happened to your ancestors. And for me, I feel like I grew stronger Mm -hmm. from that experience because I hadn't really ever comprehended how a miracle it is to survive that. Yeah. You weren't if this was a a a Vegas betting game, you would never bet that anybody would survive that. Much less the middle passage, much less 400 years of slavery, much less that I'm standing here now. Yeah. You would never have bet that this this would be uh, that I would be alive today. And going through that experience made me feel that I'm of descendant of, of of strong people. That was an interesting thing that I really liked actually about your book as well, that I think we have all seen images and films about slavery, but the 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 poignant side that that often um well, maybe not always gets overlooked, but sometimes gets overlooked, is this sense of endurance and strength and resilience. And that sense of resilience was brought out in you by visiting those places, and it was a reminder of the strength of your ancestors. And the strength that's in my bloodlines. Yeah. And it made me resolve to live my best life because that's what they would have wanted. That's why they survived. That's why they kept going. Mm -hmm. It's so that people like me could have a life and do the best that they can with it. And there's really no excuse for me not to uh, live in their memory. So it was a real moment of clarification for you, like, this crystallizes clarity, empowerment, yeah, um, and just pride. Really, pride that I, I, I'm a. I can't believe that my my ancestors went through that and survived. I, I could barely survive visiting. You know, there's a moment in one of these um, slave castles, and I hate the word castle. That's what they call them in Ghana, where they put the whole crowd of tourists in one of those holding cells. And they close the door and they shut out the light. And we're there for literally 
30 seconds. Wow. It's the longest 30 seconds of your life. You start sweating. It's hot. You start sweating. Uh, and we weren't even, you know, there's only 20 of us. Back then, they put 200 of people in there. But it just gave you, even in that 30 seconds, it gave you an inkling of what that must be like. And all of us came out of that room, and you could see, feel the sigh of relief even when they opened the, <laughs> they turned on the light and opened the door. But that was a good experience to give people a sense of how difficult that time was for, for those people who, mm-hmm. who lived and those who died. Do you think there is a difference in how slavery was perceived and survived and overcome in Africa versus North America? Are there differences in how North Americans think about it versus Africans, would you say, or at least in those countries that you visited? My sense is that some African countries view it as a tourism uh, magnet Okay. for African Americans who come with U.S. dollars, which is a very, very powerful currency everywhere in the world, Um, because their ancestors weren't enslaved. They don't get as emotional as I would get Mm-hmm. Because it's not personal to them. Um, so, yeah, I felt like there's a there's money to be made in this for them. And it's not necessarily a, a personal experience that gets them emotional the way it, it does me and most people who go visit there. Um, and it's also an external problem. It's an American problem. It's a European problem. I don't feel like most Africans take ownership of the the role that they would have played in having this institution happen and 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 last for 400 years. So there's definitely ownership that's not there in Africa that's more in North America or the Americas in general. Um yeah, and I did feel like they're they're making money off of this. They're happy to see tourists come, and um, I think the year I went was called the year of return. Ghana declared the year of return four hundred years after the slave trade started in the United States, and pretty much it was a it was a a way to get more tourism and more money into the country. First and yeah. foremost, that's hard to imagine because to put the words tourism and slavery together. It's not something that we would typically see here, but you made such an effort to go out of your way to see things that weren't the typical tourist experience of what some people would consider African tourism. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other experiences that stayed with you in the book? Uh, the audiobook, for example, you have some great experiences um, in, in open-air markets, I think, um, shopping for fabric, for, for dresses, um, looking at different types of street vendor food, shopping for all kinds of things. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? So I think most Europeans go to Africa for the animals, the big five. Um, I went to Africa for the people. That was my main goal. So I wanted to live with people. Mostly I rented apartments or rooms in a house where I could mingle with the regular people as opposed to a hotel where you're a little bit uh, far from the average person. I wanted to walk the streets. I wanted to take the public bus with the chickens. What was that And the goat. (laughs) That would have been Um, very cacophonous, I imagine. It's fun. It's an an adventure. (laughs) And you're just doing it how the regular people do it. The chickens just, all they do is, you know, do the little sound. It's not like they're going to hurt you or anything. I just think it's funny that that there's a a goat on top. And uh, that's how they travel with their food. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a story I could tell later. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did go to Africa for the people. Now... When you go to the mar- the market in Benin, particularly, is the biggest market in West Africa. That's right. And it's like five football fields. And it's kind of scary because you don't want to get lost in there. So that means I have to go with an escort. Um, because my skin tone... So in Canada, I am dark-skinned. 
But in West Africa, I'm Mariah Carey. So <laughs> I don't blend. <laughs> they know that my skin tone is not an Afri- a normal Af- West African skin tone. Obviously, some of my heritage is also French from France because that's what that's who colonized um, Haiti. And so I'm a little bit more light skinned so they can tell I'm not from there beyond that's before I start speaking. Even when I tried once to get my hair done, I, I got my hair done by African braids women. It still didn't fool anybody. I got African clothes done, still didn't fool anybody. And I also, one thing that apparently made me look like a foreigner is that I have to wear sunglasses because the sun is so bright. I just can't oh. take it. My Canadian eyes are used to no sun. <laughs> so it made you stand out. It made me stand out. So I did go to markets with, um, especially the big markets, with an escort to go shopping for fabric or food or something special. Um, Shopping for fabric is its own science. They have different quality fabrics. Uh, the The pattern might mean something. The colors might mean something. Um, And even when you pick a fabric... It might not go with what you'd like to make. Like, for example, if you're making a dress, a long dress, some fabrics don't really go with long dresses. Mm, Some of them are better for pants. I still don't get it, to be honest. I let the the guide guide me. Um, And to be honest, sometimes he picked fabrics that I was like, this is not, this is, I don't like it, but I'll trust you. And when it made it into a dress, it looked nice, but I would never have known. So they know how this works. Um, there's also times where I went to have supper mm-hmm. at an outdoor, this is in, um, Ivory Coast, which was very organized. They have a section of town for the outdoor, uh, what we would call food trucks, but without the truck. And you pick what you want and they make it and they give it to you so you could, it's a takeout place. Um, and I remember specifically going to one at around five o'clock because that's lunchtime in the United States. I was working for an American company and I asked for my food and the woman says, just wait a moment. <laughs> I know where this is going because I've listened to the book. <laughs> <laughs> I wait a moment and a moment and a moment and like 45 minutes passed by. Now I have an hour lunch. Like, I got to get going. I asked the woman, so, you know, what's going on? Is my food? Oh, it'll be ready in a moment. <laughs> so for two conclusions. First of all, the way that we employ the English or French language here doesn't necessarily mean the same thing there. The management of time is not the same thing over there than over here. And you should order your food. You should take control of the situation. Order your food go back to work, come back later when it's ready, maybe pay ahead of time, figure out a way, but don't let them manage your time because you're going to be late for work. Yeah. And you were on a clock, right? Because you were working on American time, essentially, trying Washington, to Washington, D.C. Pace. time. Yeah. New York exactly. time. Yes. Um, one of the things that I was told is that we, quote unquote, Americans are always about time. <laughs> And we are. I never thought of myself as a time person. But when you work, you have to show up on time. The lunch is supposed to last exactly an hour or less. And you you have expectations. You can't just not show up at the meetings. And um, I had sometimes uh, trouble managing time. And, And on evenings and weekends, I would just let them control the time because I didn't have a, a, a deadline. Um, but definitely that's a huge difference. And I I make the link with Aboriginal people because mm. Africans are Aboriginals in Africa. Sure. Yeah. And Aboriginal people in North America often have a different relationship with time. And sometimes that's good to take your time and, and let things flow and not be so regimented. So I tried to walk a fine line when I was over there because I did have to work. Did you want to keep that balance when you came back? Did you miss the more easygoing approach to time or was it more of a relief to get back to a scheduled world? I like schedules. 
I like planning. I like knowing ahead of time when I'm leaving, when I'm going to get there, what snacks I have to bring so that I don't get hungry on the way. I like planning everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I did, this probably was the first ever trip that I've taken abroad where I didn't have everything planned to the second. Uh, It was an impromptu trip. I, I didn't really have time to plan. And it was probably the best trip I've ever taken. So that's a lesson for everybody that you don't have to necessarily have everything planned ahead of time to have a great time. Well, and and actually you took advantage of opportunities as they came up to visit places you might not have otherwise gone. Yeah? Definitely. You know, one of the things you want to do when you're in Africa or any country, the big cities have their charms and their conveniences, but they are often Americanized, Westernized. Mm-hmm. And when you, if you want the soul of a country, you have to go to the interior, to the smaller towns that haven't been affected by colonization or, or influence of the West. So I took every opportunity to go out to the country uh, to see smaller towns, to accompany my hosts maybe that's going to see their their uh, business partner or their grandma. I'm like, let me go with you and I want to see the real thing and 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 experience and uh, have a more authentic experience. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things I liked about your audiobook as well as you used music to highlight sometimes the pace of the travel so the music gets a little bit faster or there's like cliffhanger moments where it stops. This isn't typical in audiobooks, but I I personally thought it added quite a lot to the performance and the listening experience. So when you think about how you're using music to enhance or amplify what it was like to travel, can you describe a little bit about that choice and why you used music to bring to life your experience? I will give all credit to my producer, Think Audio. He's the one that had that idea. He's the one that wanted the music. I thought it was great. It did add extra drama um, to my dialogue. And that was all his idea. I just went for it. I thought, let me, I'm not an expert in audiobooks, so let, let me let him lead. And we innovated this together. Um, the idea originally was to write a book on paper, and that takes forever, mm-hmm. and talking to a mic takes less time. So we decided to go with the audio book first, and uh, it's been a success. But that was really his idea, and I loved it. I love it, too. And you just mentioned, and I think this is interesting as well, this book didn't come out as a written form first, which is not typical for audiobooks. Usually we tend to see um, the ebook even come out before an audiobook. How did your process work? Did you write notes or bullet points and then you kind of, um, did you write a list of notes or an order of events and then you spoke to that? Or did you have a script that you used? How did you record the audiobook? This was a fly by the seat of your pants operation. So the whole <laughs> reason, <laughs> the whole reason this even came about, the audiobook, is that first, I blogged or Facebooked my trip to Africa while I was there. So you had in-the-moment experience. In-the-moment, or usually at night when I got home, because there's no internet everywhere where I go. So at night when I go home, a couple pictures, a couple comments, funny stories that happened today, that was uh, chronicled on my Facebook. And my friends were just fascinated I, I got I never got as many DMs from friends and family saying, and this is this is the this is the one friend that really made me think this is a story that needs to be told. She's from she's a friend from university. She's from small town Ontario, not the biggest world traveler at all. Um, not interested in, in in going to the third world at all. And she told me she sat down on weekends with her child, her teenage daughter, and they would go back and read every single comment, watch every single picture and follow along with me. Cause it was kind of like appointment, not appointment television, but appointment Facebook. (laughs) And I thought, wow, if, if she's interested, 
and at bated breath, this is a story that goes beyond race, beyond uh, cultures. So I thought, let me write a book about it. Um, when I came home, I shared even more details with my friends and family, and I would hold court for like an hour. Wow. And so a friend of a friend who's friends with the, the auto producer talked about my story, and he says, this is so fascinating. I had to meet this this woman. We met through internet because of COVID. Sure. And he's the one that suggested um, that I skip the book. I still write the book um, in whatever time that takes, but he said, you should put put that on audio right away. Uh, it's such a fascinating story. I'm, you know, he was interested personally um, and that's how it came to be. And I said, let's go for it. So we came to my house. We created a studio out of a closet and I spoke in the dark for six and a half hours, pretty much chronologically. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would forget something and I would say, okay, let's go back to Togo and talk about this. I forgot this detail that was interesting. And he put that all together into an audiobook. Well, I would never know because it sounds so professional. I wouldn't think this is someone reading in the dark in their closet ad lib. So if anyone's interested, I definitely encourage you to check this audiobook out. It's on Rachel's website. I'm going to link to it in the show notes as well. And Rachel, I think you're interested actually in writing a written version of the book and in bringing out some of the stories, enhancing some of the narratives with more detail or characters, context. What would you like to draw out more if you look back at the audiobook and what you initially put down? What would you emphasize or focus on more in a written version? So the written version will have even more stories that didn't make the audiobook. The audiobook, the audiobook could have been like 20 hours. I have a lot. I have so many cute stories to tell. So I want to include more of those in the book. And what I really would like to add in the book is the historical content, meaning I can, instead of saying, you know, this leader... There's a statue. This is a quick story about him. I could go into more detail into the years that he was active, links maybe. So I feel like there's a historical context that I did not get into as much in the audiobook that I would like to add to the book, the written book. Um, and perhaps I've thought about this. We don't know. But I, some of the characters I meet in the audiobook. I see things from a North American way. Mm -hmm. And some of the African people that I met that I'm still friends with, they have a different perspective on what occurred. Oh, can you give an example? I got a little border situation in Ghana that was a little mm -hmm. bit scary for me because I don't know, I don't understand what they're saying. <laughs> I'm just hoping, I'm, am I going to jail or prison? I don't know. And but the locals among each other, they know each other's languages. They can under, even if it's not their native language, they can understand most of what's being said. There's eye contact and innuendo that they understand among themselves. That I don't understand anything. Okay. And now that I've spoken to people that were present at my little border issue, they have a whole different perspective on what happened. Yeah, yeah. And I think that might be interesting to add in the book to see, you know, this is this is the North American way of seeing this incident that was scary. And this is the local version uh, that might be actually funny because they know that perhaps this is a, a bit of theater. They know <laughs> that somebody might be watching that they can't just let you go because the boss is there. Mm -hmm. Had you gone a couple hours before or after and the boss wasn't there, you would have just, you know, paid $5 and moved on. Right. So there's a lot of those things where, in hindsight, now that I've spoken to people, they're like, that's not really what happened. This is what... <laughs> Interesting. And I think that would be cool. You mentioned that sense of, you know, being detained almost. and I was you know, detained. I, wanna, yeah, I was not allowed you, to move. You weren't allowed to go. It felt... I interpreted it that you were feeling a little scared, like Very where's scared. this going? So it it would definitely be interesting to hear a perspective that indicates actually this was just a bit of theater 
probably would have gotten out in a few minutes. You would have gone on your way. That would be interesting. Or they were never going to arrest you. You were never going to go to prison. That wasn't the... You were never in danger. Exactly. But I don't know that at the time. I'm just wondering... Sure. Oh, my God. Am I going to call my parents long distance? They're going to fly all the way out here to save me. They're going to be so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. We told you to stay out of trouble all the way in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) So... All's well that ended. All's well that ended well. Nothing bad happened. But at the time, I was scared. As you, as I explained in the audiobook, I was very fearful. Well, thankfully, it was not anything to be afraid of in the end. And you, you did learn that eventually. I just waited it out for a couple hours, and then everything was fine. But I, I, I yeah, at the time, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you were traveling much of the time, or at least in the audiobook, you talk about your travels with. Someone very special that you developed a much closer relationship with. But at the time when you first met Honoré, and I'm saying it with an English accent, apologies for my my lack of French accent there, you initially thought this is a person I can trust as a guide because he was receptive to your feedback. Initially, he had an opinion, I think, about a relative who was in Canada, and you had explain to him that maybe his ideas about what it meant to move to Canada wasn't quite what he thought. And he showed receptiveness to this and receptiveness to your ideas. Can you talk a little bit about that initial interaction with Honoré? So many people in foreign countries in the developing world have preconceived ideas about the West. Just like we have preconceived ideas about Africa, how they're all poor and living in a hut, which is not what I saw. We have, uh, they have ideas about us, about our wealth, about we all live in big houses and money falls from the sky and the life is great and we have big cars. Sometimes they don't have no concept of, you no, know, we, I pay a lot of taxes. Like not all the money I make comes to my, in my pocket. Um, the house that I'm living in that's quote unquote my house it actually belongs to the bank for the next 20 years. Like, it's not really my house. And if I don't pay, the bank takes it back. The car might be a lease. Like, there's a lot of stuff that they don't really understand because it's not part of their reality. Right. And when they have a relative who might be lucky enough to meet somebody and they whisk him away or her away to North America, to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, this person apparently ascends to royalty or money and you would expect that eventually they would send some back. Mm-hmm. And he had, even though he doesn't need anything, he had expectations that this woman would help him out sometime, maybe Christmas. Sure. And she never did. Uh, she's called a couple of times and when she's called, she's, she was sad over the phone. She happens to live in rural Canada like all the way up north past Quebec City where I'm like, there's probably no black people around. She has nobody to talk to in her culture. She has to adapt to a new country. Even though we both speak French, our French are their French and their French are two different Frenches. So Mm -hmm. linguistically, she's in a new country. Culturally, she's in a new country. Weather-wise, it's a whole different world. And she doesn't work yet because she has to go to school like many immigrants. You had to go to school and get a piece of paper because you don't, they don't believe your piece of paper from back home. So she might not have a job. And you're, you have your hand out. Not understanding the context of where this woman is. And I just put this together by listening to what she, he, he said about her. I don't know her personally, but I just imagine that, you know, you're asking the wrong person for a handout. She, she needs help now. She needs support. Mm-hmm. In, in her transition to becoming a, a productive member of society with a job and enough money to send back. And she has a child. I mean, she has no babysitter to help her out. And you, Honoré, you live with your, fa- your family in the compound. There's 16 aunties that can take care of your kid when you decide to go away on business or whatever, or, or you can't get home on time to pick them up from school. You have all this help. You you might be better off than she is right now. 
So I, I told him that in a very blunt way. And to my surprise, he was receptive. And he ended up communicating with her and uh, renewing a friendship with her and offering even just more support. And I'm not saying that he can you know babysit on the weekends for her, but at least be there morally to say, you know, I understand that your your life might not be easy right now. It'll get better. And I don't want to be the extra burden with a handout. Sure, sure. And then I think the interesting thing here is this conversation, which was very frank, and you were revealing some ideas that he might have taken offense to or gotten defensive about. He didn't get defensive because he spoke with her, like you said, and he came back to you and he said, you know what? Actually, you're right. And this was the beginning, at least the, the way it's framed in the audiobook, which I love. It's like, this is the beginning of this really um, wonderful relationship that starts to grow between you two. And you also describe this experience of sitting down for a meal together. And for you, in your mind, it's a very small, casual, you know, it's convenient. It's convenient to eat together. But again, there's this experience of saying, in his culture, this is special. This is a way of bonding, of sharing intimacy. Definitely. So that's what I was talking about before about there's different perspectives here, and I only have my perspective. Uh, when you invite somebody to lunch or to dinner um, in many West African cultures, it is a a gesture that means something. It means you're fostering a relationship. Um, you don't just invite just anybody to dinner. Right. Whereas for me, I'm like, you're here, I'm here, I got time. Let's just, you know, you're not going anywhere. Why don't we just sit down? (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't mean mean, anything at all to me. (laughs) And I don't want to give away the spoiler, so tell me if you want to cut this out. But I think it's so romantic that you and Honoré end up getting married. And this is just such a wonderful surprise. I was not expecting this in the audiobook. And... You you talk a little bit about that experience, and I don't want to give away too much for listeners because I think they should listen to this book for themselves and experience it. You had had said many times throughout the book, you know, I'm an independent woman. I don't need to have a husband or children because you'd been asked about this, of course, by many people in Africa, men especially, and you ended up with the love of your life. <laughs> Yes. You know, you you say it's a surprise uh, in the audiobook. It was a surprise to me, too. Mm-hmm. I told the story as I lived it. It was a shock to me, too. I'm not looking for love. I'm not looking for a partner. I'm good. <laughs> yes. And he just literally fell on my lap. Literally just fell on my lap on the sidewalk when I was asking just a stranger for directions um, and that blossomed into a relationship. I love that we met and were in a working relationship at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of Bridgerton, actually, if I'm being honest. Oh, (laughs) that is... Where they're just business. (laughs) It's strictly business. We don't like each other. It's not even a thought in in anybody's head. It's just Mm -hmm. a business relationship. And I think that gives room to be honest, to be yourself, your authentic self, when you don't have to try to impress anybody, when there are no expectations. Um, And, you know, I walk around without makeup. I don't care. I'm not trying to impress you. And he's not trying to impress me either. And through that being authentic... I think that's when we can be, uh, you can get to know somebody for real very Absolutely. quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what happened. Well, I love that because initially, as listeners, we're hearing about you travel while you're working, and it ends up being this incredibly personal experience for many reasons, but especially because of this wonderful relationship. And I'm uh, so happy for you. That's that's a wonderful uh way to to wrap up the story. I want to revisit the idea of modern technology. You, know, you take a genetic ancestry test and technology plays a key role in your life and career. And listeners might not know this, but you actually helped lead the Congressional App Challenge during the Obama administration. 
And how do you see the role of technology in your life and work? And maybe before we go on, I'll explain to listeners that the Congressional App Challenge is in the United States. It's designed to engage student creativity and encourage their participation in science, technology, engineering, and math, or STEM, education fields. And it's a nationwide event. And so you were traveling around the United States before you went to Africa as part of your job. And you've had all of these different experiences with technology and with people from all walks of life. Can you talk a little bit about that and bringing it all together, bringing about the idea of technology and authenticity and identity? So I am a software engineer. That was my first career. I have a degree in computer science. Um, And I ended up being the national director of the Congressional App Challenge, where I, on behalf of Congress, promote computer science across the United States, all 50 states, which was exciting. Um, And I would link it to the DNA test. If it wasn't for DNA technology, there would be no way for me to find out where my ancestors are from. Exactly. The, the records have been lost or were never taken or have been burnt in, in the case of some African places where they just burned it down when they left. Yeah. So there are no records. If it wasn't for technology, I couldn't even take this trip right. to Africa, knowing where I was going, choosing countries where I was from. Um, and technology also allowed me to rent out my place in, in Washington, D.C. through the Internet. I got a, a subletter for six months. And it also allowed me to work full-time, remotely. You know, pre-COVID, this was kind of a, a, an arrangement that wasn't normal, right? And exactly. through technology, having the internet access in West Africa, I was able to work. Um, so technology plays a role in my life, in my career, in this story. And it's a positive for me, at least, it's been a positive, um, a positive way to to enhance my life. Really, um, whether it's my career, whether it's the DNA test, whether it's even being able to take out my BlackBerry and take pictures as I'm traveling um, through the country, and and almost all the pictures I have are from my my phone. I didn't actually have a big camera. So all of that is thanks to technology. Technology brings us together. I think it brought it brought a lot of people together when they were following me on Facebook. Mm-hmm, that's right. So technology has made the world smaller, and it got us connected, I think, in ways that weren't possible 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Technology and is how I got to do this audiobook. With, uh, with you know, right. the, the, that's how I distribute the audiobook is through the internet. There's no store that has it. You have to go through online. So technology has been uh, really a, a driving force in every one of these adventures. Yeah, it's opened up so many doors for you and for many people, of course. And after your travels and the perspective that you've gained from that, what are some of the limitations you see us placing on the role of technology or on ourselves in North America? And how would your experience and travel frame that perspective? So technology does have limitations. Um, as I said before, being there physically in those spaces where your ancestors walked cannot be digitalized. No. And so there is room for that in-person experience. Um, The conversations I had with everyday Africans where we talked about our lives, uh, our our shared history, the political issues that are happening in Africa, you can't put that, you can't digitalize that. That couldn't have happened on Facebook. Sure. Certain places, actually, they're, they're not comfortable speaking truth to power online because there might be consequences. But when you're at dinner or sitting on the porch uh, at night conversing with the the guard, uh, that's when he feels comfortable telling you some of his real-life challenges and hopes and dreams. So technology does have its limits. It's a key. It can open the doors, but then you have to walk in. Yeah. Do you see us 
limiting our use of technology or using technology in a way that limits us though. Like maybe there's a way we could be using technology to connect differently that we're not using because we think of technology for certain purposes and we're used to using that. So for example, technical people, the stereotype is, you know, the hoodie wearing person, usually a guy in Silicon Valley, you traveled in all kinds of places, not, not, um, I'm not limiting just to your, your specific travels in West Africa, but throughout the United States. And you saw so much enthusiasm and appreciation for what technology can do. Yes. So my job in the United States, working for the United States Congress, it was a non-partisan job. I worked with Republicans and Democrats. I worked with Silicon Valley members of Congress and Arkansas members of Congress. Coming into that position, I had preconceived notions about which members of Congress from what parts of America would be more enthusiastic about promoting computer science among their youth. And I was wrong. Number one, tech today is not just your phone made in China and the apps that are from Silicon Valley. Technology is everywhere. It's in the bank, the teller, the ATM machine that you use all across the nation. It's in even rural areas. When we think about farming nowadays, a lot of farming has been digitalized, meaning we don't just water crops whenever. We have technology taking in the weather patterns and whether it'll rain tomorrow so you can be more efficient with your water usage. Sometimes some of these machines that are uh, managing the crops are actually big robots, that they program to go around the crops and, and water or, or fertilize or something like that. So there's technology in almost all facets of our lives. There's medical. The medical field is, is digitalizing a lot of operations that are done remotely nowadays through robots. So it's getting to be pervasive in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And I was happy to see that rural America is also and Republican. Usually, rural means Republican in most of the United States. Sure. They're just as enthusiastic about um, having youth adopt this knowledge as the people in New York and and Silicon Valley and and Houston. Um, that was a refreshing thing to see because I think and this is what I used to say all the time, is that I'm trying to promote the idea that we want our youth to have the skills for the jobs of of tomorrow. This wave is not going to end anytime soon, and we don't just want China and Korea to be building the tools. We want to have our people also uh, be at least uh, tech, um, not just tech savvy, but having the knowledge to build their own. Mm -hmm. And I also saw that in the developing world, I think you some people might have heard of M-Pesa, which is a way to use uh, telephone, um, older older telephones to sp- send money and pay for bills. So that's the way that they're using, using technology over there. And I'm sure as they get more and more digital, they'll use other, hopefully they'll have more ingenious ways of using technology to make their lives easier. Um, there is a fear that we become so tech dependent that, you know, when we have a, uh, a power outage, a flood, and we have no power for a couple of days or months that, you know, some of us can't function, <laughs> that's a little bit worrisome. Um, but generally, I think it's, it's a good thing that we're uh, mm-hmm. getting more efficient and more transparent using technology. Yes, absolutely. And you've talked a little bit now about your past in terms of your career and your and your focus as well as your travels and your personal journey so i'd love to hear what's next for you talk a little bit about your next projects yeah well the good news is the first chapter of my book will appear as a short story in the upcoming chicken soup for the soul the subtitle is I'm speaking now. Black women share their truth in 101 stories of love, courage, and hope. That comes out in June. That's the next big thing I'm doing. Um, Aside from finishing writing my book, I will be, hopefully after COVID, there's going to be more traveling. 
um, with my spouse and my child. We'd love to see the Caribbean, um, maybe even go to Haiti to see the linkages that he might feel going to to a country that his ancestors would have populated uh, all those mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and just enjoying being a mom and um, enjoy, enjoying life, really. I just like, I'm a homebody. I like just doing regular things, going on, skating on the canal or jogging along the canal. I'm a soccer mom now. Um, no <laughs> and the next big, big, big thing that we have circled on our calendar is the World Cup when it comes to North America in 2026. Oh, well, we should definitely be clear of COVID by then. Yes. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm super excited to see what you come out with next. I'm sure it'll be interesting. I was looking at your, I think, was it your Twitter profile? It might it was one of your public profiles, but did you found a fan club as well? Yeah. Oh, did I not say that in technology? I don't know if you care. So back in 1995, when I arrived at the University of Guelph the first day, it was like, it's like the day after Di Diana died, Princess Diana. Um, and I've heard of this thing called the internet. <laughs> no, it was called the World Wide Web. The World then. Wide Web, yes. So I heard about it. And within the first week of the, of being on campus, I said, show me where this World Wide Web thing, I want to see what it is. Back then, it was a lot of black and white texts. And if you got this new browser called Netscape, you might see some pictures. <laughs> being in the computer so software engineering uh, discipline, I thought, this is technology. I should probably figure out what this is. It might be, it might become something in the future. Let me learn HTML, which is the language that you create websites with by hand. Mm -hmm. I taught myself HTML. The University of Guelph gave every student free web space on which they could put web content if they want. So I activated, I activated it, put some web content on there. But what am I going to talk about? Like, I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm going to talk about my favorite person in the whole world, which is Whitney Houston. So I started a Whitney Houston fan website. This website became the biggest Whitney Houston fan site on the internet. I got wow. millions of hits. At a certain point, they were like, I, I was taking some like 30% of the web traffic of the whole entire University of Guelph was from my Whitney website. No way. They just didn't have a lot of other website at the time. Mine was the one that came up when you searched on Yahoo. This is before Google existed. <laughs> yes. And I had hits coming from across the world, like Europe, Middle East was big on Whitney Houston. Like, you name it, it was me. And it grew into a huge enterprise. And I got to be on uh, some American magazines because of it, namely Us Magazine. It's that's wow. the biggest one I appeared in back that's then. You had to get your entertainment news by buying a, ma a magazine. Oh, <laughs> it was a weekly magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in one of those magazines. They talk about how this is actually this is really interesting. The article, 1997, June, I believe. The article talked about this new phenomenon called fan websites. A new phenomenon. <laughs> and they listed a whole bunch of them. There was Trekkie websites and fan sites for whoever was a big star back then. And the last paragraph of this article starts with, quote, Like the beach variety, web surfers tend to be white and male. This is why Rachel DeCoste, a 20-year-old software engineering student in Canada, stands out because she's black and she's a woman. She's somewhat of a pioneer. And then they talk about my Whitney Houston fan site, how I've never heard from her. A week later, I got an email from Whitney. <gasps> I no. died. Oh, what did she say? She said, I saw your article. I consider you a friend of mine. Thank you for being a fan I Aww. died oh my gosh what a moment so, yes technology is the key to everything <laughs> yes 
<laughs> oh, I love that story. So it started very me. early for me. And if I want to go, since you're recording, I'm going to go. If The real start for me with technology was in the 80s. I was approximately 12. My parents got a computer so we could type our assignments instead of doing it on a typewriter. Mm-hmm. The computer, which maybe was like a 286 or 186, like it's a really early model. It came with a free computer programming uh, language called GW Basic. I went to the library and got a book to learn what this thing was about. And I ha- I created my first computer program, which was for my little sister. She was learning math at the time. So it was a randomly, a random test where it, it would ask you, what is three plus two? And then you had three tries to get the right answer. And if you didn't get it right, well, it told you what the right answer was. If you got it right, it asked you another one. And it would randomly ask you uh, math questions. That was my first program. I did not know I was programming back then. I just was, quote, unquote, playing with the computer. It's when I arrived <laughs> at University of Guelph, mm-hmm. first year programming class, and I was like, oh, I, I know, I've seen this stuff before. And that's what I learned that I was programming when I was 13. Without even calling it programming. Didn't know it was just, called programming. Ended up just being my fun. career. Exactly. That's Life so happens cool. when you're having fun. So technology started very early for me. It's becoming my career. And it's helped me, you know, go to Africa. It's helped me do the, the audiobook. Um, I'm I'm a fan of technology. I love it. And I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Rachel. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. If you love Access Ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas. Thank you.